This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. How about that? Get a round of applause. Good afternoon, everyone. Nice to welcome you all here this afternoon. Thanks for taking a little bit of your time on a Sunday afternoon to come and have a, a fascinating conversation about the whole Apple versus the FBI case. Uh, the level of interest is quite clear from how full the room is today. Um, I thought, actually, you know, we're talking about dangerous ideas, and in, in many cases, the online world is almost the embodiment of dangerous idea formation, <laughs> be it both for good or for bad also. So I, I, I think we're in quite a pivotal spot here uh, mm. this afternoon to think about some of uh, those, be it for good online commerce, uh, for mass communications, for freedom of expression. Um, I'm sure most of you use the internet on a minute-by-minute -minute basis, let alone a daily basis, but also for bad, uh, the, the use of the online environment for crime, uh, for bullying, and all sorts of other nefarious purposes. Um, so we see these dangerous ideas on, our, on a daily basis. Um, so I think what we're here today to discuss is the FBI versus the Apple case. Now, I don't think the Apple incident is the first time by any stretch of the imagination that an American company had begun to uh, challenge some of the uh, US government's policy decisions. You've seen a multitude of other companies, be it Twitter, Verizon, um, amongst many others, having ongoing court cases with the US. But I think earlier this year, this case really um, hit home in global media attention. Um, the, the friction that now exists between government, the citizen, and those large enterprises uh, that are now so actively part of our everyday lives. Um, and I think what we have here today are three incredible experts to discuss this with us. The first thing I wanted to do, though, just, just before I introduce our experts, is I want to do a quick poll at the beginning and at the end of this session, just to get you guys involved here. And it's obviously going to be a pretty rough sketch here. But firstly, I want anyone who thinks, from what they know about the FBI Apple case, um, if you felt that Apple, if you like, hold, held the power balance and they were in the right in terms of that entire case, stick your hands up now. <laughs> Liv's getting involved. We're not supposed to vote. Uh, no, we you're going to be That's okay. Uh, I gave it away. <laughs> <laughs> then, then if I could ask anyone who felt that the FBI was in the right for, for this case, stick their hands up now. Yay. Okay. So we, we start off on a, on a sound footing that the majority of the audience own an Apple iPhone or a computer, <laughs> and they're entirely biased on this fact, and they don't want any of their secrets found out. So that, that's a good place to start. But anyway, let, let's get into this panel discussion and see if maybe a few minds can't be changed or swayed either way. Um, it's an absolute honor to be able to introduce Lev Grossman, um, author of four books, one of which is a, a best-selling novel on the New York Times best-selling list. Um, absolute pleasure to have you here. Long history and journalism of, of many different varieties. So thank you very much for joining us today, Lev. Um, Dr. Katina Michael, Professor uh, of the School of Informatic Systems and Technology at the University of Wollongong, uh, published and written and edited six books. Um, so uh, quite, quite, quite the number of uh, books that we have already in the line here. And, and last but not least, we have uh, Alistair McGibbon. Uh, no books as yet, but as of April this year, <laughs> he was uh, appointed to... There's a book to in the there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's somewhere 
it totally the, the memoirs one day are still <laughs> be worth right. it. Um, but he, he was appointed <laughs> early this year as the special advisor to the Prime Minister on cybersecurity um, and resides at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. So we have a real cross-section here. We have government, academia, uh, and uh, journalist stroke novelist. Um, and, and myself, who maybe you, you probably don't know who the hell I am, actually, sitting here, Cherry. Um, I'm Toby Feakin. I reside at a little think tank in Canberra called the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, and I run something called the International Cyber Policy Centre. So I have more time than is healthy to apparently be forming these dangerous ideas. So perhaps if I can kick off uh, with the panel with a, with a general question, and we'll, we'll run down and, and just open things up. Um, I want to ask each of you, and perhaps starting with Lev, um, what, what do you think are, are the most important elements or lessons from this? case um, that you can learn? Uh, lessons from the case? Well, um, I feel like, first, I, I, I want to clarify uh, my sense that raising a hand for Apple uh, is more uh, about um, seeing this uh, issue um, uh, pass into Congress uh, and be uh, debated by a panel in a very public, transparent way, and have law be written to clarify it. Um, uh, that's, my, that's, my, that's my vote. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, other things to take away. Uh, I think the, the thing that surprised me, really, was the, was the, the denouement uh, of the uh, Apple versus S FBI non-case, uh, uh, because it really didn't get very far, um, uh, was the fact that uh, the FBI possibly reading tea leaves, uh, not liking its chances in court, uh, essentially admitted, uh, oh, we didn't actually need your guys' help. Uh, uh, we could crack it anyway. Um, uh, I think it, you know, it reminds us that um, uh, all this stuff, is, it's, it's a matter, uh, in many cases, of posturing and feints and marketing rather than technical reality. Mm, that's interesting. Um, Certainly something we can maybe dig into in, in a little while is some of that, the, uh, the, the background from Apple's perspective and, and where it positioned them as a company um, and some of the dealings around share price change and the like mm. during that time. But we'll, we'll save that for a little bit later. Perhaps, Katrina, if I could ask you. I think this was an absolutely stupendous case. It had absolutely everything, almost like mm. a reality TV show, <laughs> except we were dealing with the FBI and the Department of Justice, a real court and a real big company that we all know and love, Apple. Um, it was a collision course, personal security, organisational security, national security, trying to weigh up the pros and cons between security, public safety, privacy and organisational product innovation. It had everything. And in the end, um, I think the debate was couched in terms of privacy versus security and then it moved on towards security versus national security. Think about that for a moment. But I'd love to say, you know, I didn't put up my hand for Apple and I didn't put up my hand for FBI. I've put up my hand for the citizens. And it's public opinion, it's public knowledge, it's sentiment, it's knowing what's going on, it's us knowing what's going on. It's the difference between warrants and warrantless searching. It's knowing who's snooping in our everyday information. It's knowing what's happening to our phone records, our email, all the different touch points and products out there that we have in our household, and knowing how they're being used for us or against us in the name of national security, in the name of personal safety, in the name of organisational progress. And in the end, it's about human rights, privacy, and security. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if, if any of you didn't know about... Uh, if anybody didn't know about encryption prior to this case, they, they sure as hell did by the end of it, that's yes. for sure. Um, Alistair. So, Toby, let me firstly say 
In, in your soap opera, in that reality show, the most important opening scene was a tragic crime, mm. a crime committed against innocent people. Uh, and, and, and as the debate evolved, what I noticed very quickly was an enormous amount of emotion coming from people uh, uh, who, who suggested that uh, the government had no role in these things. And, and let me briefly give, give my pitch, my dangerous idea perhaps. Uh, our law, our, our physical law, is, is built around this concept of, of a man's home is their castle. Uh, there is nothing more private, nothing more secure that we have than our house. And yet our civil society, and this goes back to Roman days, it goes back to the 1600s when it comes to English law, it's in the Fourth Amendment, I think, in the United States. Uh, this is how we protect ourselves against government. However, the civil society allows for the fact that a court can issue a warrant to allow law enforcement agencies to go in and do that. I've done that myself as a police officer. It's transgressing people's privacy, it's transgressing their rights in order to keep civil society. And as I say, I've done that multiple times. Now, let me just uh, take a straw poll. Who here in this room has had a search warrant executed upon them or a friend of theirs? It's okay, it doesn't mean... Well, there, there's, there is one. Okay, excellent. I, I, I won't ask for details. At, at, we can chat later. Uh, so, so let me just say that it is about as likely as that, possibly even less likely, that, a, that an agency is going to try and execute a search warrant upon your electronic device uh, or access your electronic records using a warrant. It's about that likely. And yet, when you followed this debate on the internet, it was the government coming after every single one of us, every single one of you, to trample your rights. Now, what I find problematic with that is the blue light, that beautiful blue light that comes from these machines when we, when we look at them at night, is not some aura protecting them in some nirvana against the rest of society. The reality is these devices are integral to our lives. And it is acceptable, in my view, that from time to time the government gain access to that information upon them. If you were the victim of that crime, if you were the relative of a victim of that crime, in fact, you have an expectation as a society that law enforcement and intelligence agencies protect you against those crimes. But to say that somehow that device shouldn't have been accessed or couldn't have been accessed, and Apple actively worked against the concept. Let's just briefly, if I may, talk about what the FBI asked for. In the end, the FBI and the court asked Apple, which they were in lawful possession of this device, asked Apple to take it, the FBI wouldn't be in that room, to write code to help break into it, to allow the FBI to take the information off and that code could be destroyed. Not a backdoor built into hundreds of millions of devices so they could access all of ours. Just so they could gain information about a terrorist attack. Now, the problem with the debate was this. One, the assumption that all these agencies are endlessly resourced and endlessly staffed. That they have a voracious appetite for your and my information. And lastly, the most bizarre thing, the most bizarre thing of all, as we criticise governments for being inefficient all around the world, somehow you found the one agency that was the most efficient of all, the nirvana of government. That, that, that exactly. I mean, I'm a government official. We get criticised all the time for inefficiency, and yet somehow the intelligence agencies are endlessly resourced, voracious in their appetite, and efficient. And we know they're not. So what happened in the end? What happened in the end is this. Apple refused to cooperate. What did the FBI do? It went out to the market, broke into that device and got the information and did not share the way that that device was breached with Apple. Are we better off as a result? Was Apple better off and are we better off as citizens or should or could they have cooperated with that court order? 
So it sounds very logical what you're saying, Alistair. Um, and I can Thank you, I appreciate a lot of what you said. But, <laughs> but let's not deny it. It's a good that, start, that, that, Well, the context has been set prior to that, though, hasn't it? And, and the fact is, is that Edward Snowden revealed bulk data collection, and that's where the paranoia comes in from the public. They can understand and appreciate your very logical argument that, you know, this is only targeted, it's under a warrant-only uh, provision that you could access particular data, but... Currently, where the public is at is in this real trust deficit with government in not really trusting um, how their data is accessed, when and why, and what kinds of provisions there are for oversight. I mean, perhaps, Katina, you, you could just talk to that a little bit. I know you look at that in some of your work. Well, it's an incredible thing. Uh, the National Security Agency said they didn't have the budget to actually try and hack in to the iPhone. And the press really didn't say too much about the fact that Apple was already working with the FBI prior, they actually gave access to the FBI six weeks before of the data of Saeed Farouk's iCloud data. So it's not like Apple wasn't helping. We just heard the story from the court case and thereafter. So Apple had their engineers collegially, collaboratively working. And when they begged to ask the question, okay, so what probable cause do you have? Let's think about proportionality. What was on that phone that we didn't have? And the general public don't realise that the metadata for that phone of Farouk was widely available. They could have gone through the process of getting through to the telecoms operator, receiving quality detail records for that day, for the period of six years if they wanted to. And they would have had all the metadata originating, call holding times, terminating calls, the whole lot, the social network, identifying numbers, everything. Do you know how many minutes the NSA didn't have of that day? where 14 people lost their lives and 22 were wounded, only 18 minutes. This whole hoo-ha happened for 18 minutes that the NSA didn't have any data about what was going on with the shooters. So pretty 18, 18 critical minutes. Okay. But we can piece together using predictive analytics, using social network analysis, using a plethora of data mining techniques with the caller detail records. The whole issue was that the FBI, who, had, who requested from Apple in the first six months of 2015, 10,000 requests for access to iPhones every month. 10,000 requests, which Apple said, we will help you. 10,000 requests per month were made through different warrant processes. Okay, so the issue is, was the FBI waiting for this terrorist attack? or some attack, or some kidnapping to go, right, we're not going to go through Congress, they're too slow, and plus there's a new president coming in. We're going to go through the court. We're going to make warrantless tracking constitutional. PRISM, the NSA's work, Snowden blew it up. It was unconstitutional, yet they're still doing it. So the whole issue was, how do we make snooping on everyday citizens in, in America constitutional? Okay, let's hold a case, like we should be scared of terrorism and they made the terrorist case a vehicle for passing warrantless searching of people. And search and seizure, boy, look at Amer American history. People died for that Fourth Amendment. And we're about to just unleash warrantless tracking, warrantless snooping on people because of a case? How dare they use the loss of 14 people's lives to try to do this? And it's got repercussions for foreign policy, for the way that organisations across the world operate, for how the EU looks at the United States. And this has much more to do with uh, organisations, and Lev, you'd know that. Apple, Google, all the American companies, Facebook, LinkedIn, the list goes on. 
If this case set a precedent, they'd all be in very big trouble from the EU's perspective on data protection, because they don't want to do business with the US anymore. And they're losing lots of large-scale clients. Before I give Alistair a bit of time to, to think about a response there, yeah, I actually want to bring, to, uh, uh, to, to bring Lev in. Lev, you, you interviewed Tim Cook, and if any of you haven't read uh, Lev's article in Time magazine, I implore you, go and have a read. It's, it's one of the most in-depth pieces you'll read on this whole issue. Um, drawing on those perspectives we've just heard, you know, what was your sense in, in interviewing Tim Cook and, and how he was positioning Apple. Did you feel this was an issue that was very close to his heart and Apple's heart, that they needed to do this on behalf of the whole of the US? Did you get any sense of uh, maybe other agendas that would play there? Perhaps if you could just reflect somewhat on that. It's a little bit of a hypothetical that Tim Cook has a heart, but let's assume that... <laughs> that he you heard it here first. I didn't see the heart. I didn't feel the heartbeat, but we'll assume it's in there somewhere. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's very accurate to say that Apple assisted the FBI uh, pretty extensively uh, up to that point. And it's probable that uh, it was the FBI screw-up that kept them out of that phone. Uh, because Apple keeps unencrypted, uh, unencrypted backups of iPhones uh, in the cloud, and it delivered several of those to the FBI. It just didn't have uh, as recent a one as the FBI wanted. Um, yeah, there's no question that, uh, well, there is a question. Um, it's, it's, a, it's one of the things that makes it complicated is uh, Apple uh, has a history of shrouding itself in a kind of exceptionalism. Um, the regular rules don't apply to us. Uh, obviously, Apple is uh, uh, very, a very zealous guardian of its own brand, and its own brand was very publicly uh, on the line here. Uh, is there, did that inform uh, uh, Cook's rhetoric on the topic. Um, yeah, I think it did. It forced him into a position of uh, where he was, uh, he was sort of pretending to be a statesman of some kind, making uh, arguments about policy and rights to privacy, which is a very vexed idea um, without a very firm constitutional basis. It's confusing. There's no, that, that phrase, the right to privacy, doesn't occur uh, in the Constitution. Um, so, uh, one of the things that muddies this case is, is that uh, Apple is, um, you know, acting, uh, is it acting uh, out of uh, some kind of, um, uh, is, is, is it trying to promote some sort of abstract uh, ideology, or is it, is it servicing its shareholders, or trying in a really uncomfortable way to kind of do both? Um, Probably that third one. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a mistake to uh, make Apple a hero in this situation. True. I mean, some of you might not realize, but um, in early February 2016, Apple's share price was at its lowest ebb in two years. And actually following the case, when you looked at the share price, it had bounced within a month up $10 per share, and that's not an insignificant bounce. Um, you know, the old adage of any publicity is good publicity, it certainly done their cause no harm. And I'm not saying that's all, you know, the entire reason. Of course not, but... It's, it's an astounding to... marketing achievement that yeah. by refusing to comply with a terrorism investigation, <laughs> they got a stock bounce out of that. <laughs> mm. Um, absolutely. Uh, Alistair, perhaps if you could um, just, just give us a bit more um, substance on, you know, what is it that governments are looking for here? And I think it's something else that everyone should realise, that this was not, this was the FBI, this wasn't the whole US government against Apple, you know, that, that wasn't the case. You saw divisions within the different government departments, um, Department of Defence, Ash Carter came out very, very publicly at an RSA conference in Silicon Valley saying, absolutely, we have no interest in technological solutions to this, and was universally applauded 
out of the building by, by the audience, um, and that did his new uh, startup groups in, in Silicon Valley no harm at all either. Um, also, the NSA were, were very reticent to become involved, and I, I have uh, no, no qualms in saying I can imagine the NSA being able to solve that whole issue very, very quickly if they'd chosen to become involved. So you saw divisions. So, and that's important, I think, in setting that context, which is, you know, there isn't ubiquitous government here, I think, in these decisions, and also um, it does back up Alistair's point that I don't think government want access to everything you do in this room. But Alistair, can you just reflect a bit more? What is it that government... What, what do you think they can gain from this discussion? Because be under no illusions, this discussion's only just started, and especially here in Australia. Yes, it has. Uh, and I, I, I need to pull Katina up a little bit. If this is a debate about what is happening to our data, how much data we are giving out, how much data is accessed by large corporations, unencrypted in some circumstances, handed over uh, in others, uh, monetized uh, remarkably by these large corporations who tend to give their services to us free because we then provide them the profit, uh, is a very different debate. So it, it is an exceptionally different, and it's a debate we need to have. So to the organisers of FODI, next year, let's have a good debate about data and privacy and what happens to it. This debate is about lawful access to a device that the FBI was in possession of, which was a county device. And, you're, and Lev, you're absolutely right. Had they not reset the password to that device, then everything that Apple handed over, by the way, uh, to the FBI would have been in that cloud. So let's, let's, let's have no illusions whatsoever that law enforcement doesn't get access when it needs to, to information. That's not what this debate is about. Because as you say, this data is accessed by law enforcement lawfully uh, in this country and in other countries all the time. It's just there are a lot of us, and the vast bulk of the time, they don't want ours, okay? But if you commit a serious crime or you're related to someone who commits a serious crime, like a major act of terrorism, you bet government is going to want access to that. And what happened here is there was a gap. There was a gap between what was sitting in the cloud that we've already said Apple was happily handing over to the FBI, by the way, using lawful process, uh, and then there was the concept of what is on this device, and it's not the same as just the, the, the to and from phone calls. If that's all it was, you go to AT&T or Verizon or wherever else it is and pull that record. Any detective has done that many times. Yeah, this is different. What that phone holds is a whole range of extra information. Just look at your phone when you go home and have a look in your privacy settings, have a look at your location services. It'll tell you where you've been. Okay? Those same companies know where you've been. So there are things on those devices that you can't get unless you get into that device. This was a serious criminal offence. This, by the way, in the state of New South Wales is the number one concern New South Wales citizens have, okay? is the concept of how law enforcement protects them against acts like this. So if you can't gain access to a device to properly investigate a matter, then we have problems. If the law doesn't keep up with it, then it's got to go before a parliament or a congress. And the way you do that is you test the law. You go to a judge and the judge issues an order as they did in this case, and Apple believed it was above that. Now, you can believe you're above it all you like, but the law is the law, and the only place to fight it is in court. They didn't have their day in court in the end, and I hope they do. Because what will happen is this, any self-respecting Western democracy these days will say, got to change that law so there's lawful access. What we didn't see in this debate was a rational debate. What I read on Twitter and on other social media was this concept of a backdoor. Have we heard of backdoors before? This was this concept that Apple was going to be forced to build a backdoor into hundreds of millions of our devices. I've got one in my pocket. I don't want them doing that. And that's not what was asked, but that's what you read on social media. So we didn't see the normal citizen being able to weigh this case up. 
what we saw was high emotion coming from a small section of society skewing that debate within minutes. And as a consequence, the public didn't hear the truth. As a consequence, the lawmakers didn't get to say what do our citizens need. And as a consequence, there's still a gap there in the United States and we'd have one here too. And that's just not good for us. Because government doesn't want it from everyone, but every once in a while, just like a, a man's home is their castle, you need to be able to transgress that. You want to be able to do it under warrant, okay? You don't want it warrantless. You want to make sure there's a law that governs it. You want to make sure there's oversight from the courts. You want parliaments to say whether you've overstepped it and to change that law. But that's not what we got in this case because of the high emotion and because of Apple's actions. And I think that's a crying shame for all of us all around the world. Can I, can I dig into the, uh, the trust equation a bit here? I mean, it, it, it seems that we do trust, you know, and I bet, you know, 60, 70% of you in this room are holding an Apple phone. And, and most of you will trust that product and everything that it provides you with. And, and that trust seems to be there because it provides you with a service and a multitude of other wonderful things that you can access. Um, how do governments go about regaining trust? And I'm, I'm not actually going to ask you, Alistair. Cause yeah, good. That's a harder <laughs> so question. Well, I think, right, good, well, I think it's perhaps, perhaps Lev. I mean, you, you've seen it now as, as a journalist and um, in, in your work for a long time now. How do you think governments now go about regaining citizens as, um, you know, within that trust equation. Because at the moment, from where I sit, um, and I might be wrong, but I still think there is quite a deficit. Yeah, well, there has, there, there, it's, 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 a, it's a very difficult thing. If it was, if it was easy, everybody would do it. Sure. Uh, <laughs> um, it's, it's not simple. Um, and part of the problem is that, um, uh, part of the problem is that a lot of the work that governments is, is doing, that people want them to do, uh, uh, is, is, is stuff that's classified, doesn't come out until years and years later. Um, uh, whereas what does come out, the successes are, are much, it's much harder to talk about the successes in a, in a public, transparent way. Uh, whereas the screw-ups uh, are, are often very public and apparent. For example, the fact that the NSA apparently lost control of some of its code uh, not that long ago. Well, when that happened, everybody's, uh, not everybody, but a lot of people said Apple was right. If Apple was, gonna, was to give them a tool uh, that powerful uh, that can get people into iPhones, uh, Apple's, one of the things that Apple said was, government can't be trusted with this tool. They can't manage it. They're not going to be able to keep it under wraps. Well, the NSA leak um, kind, of, um, kind of backs up that position. Uh, uh, so, it, you know, I, it, it's going to take a different kind of transparency, uh, and I don't know how actually how you achieve it. Uh, I also, it, it will take a certain amount of not publicly screwing up. Um, I don't know how you achieve that either. Katina, please. You have to earn trust. Isn't that what we do with all our relationships? If you've never met someone before, and even if you do know them, trust is earned. How about we start with telling the public what we're doing? and asking them to be involved in this public opinion and debate. How about we start? Do we have your permission? And if you tell somebody or you ask somebody, contribute, tell us what you think, guess what? We don't mind so much. As citizens, we don't mind if we're being told beforehand, this is what we're going to do, this is why we're going to do it, what do you think? Do you have any vehement claims against or for it? And what happened in the States is we have the Pew Research telling us, well, Americans are polarized in this debate. 50% said FBI, 50% said Apple. Ideologically siloed. And that's what governments fear. Yes, they fear that the Googles of this world have absolutely more data than they do. 
But then, as a citizen, I questioned these metadata laws. I gave evidence with the changes to the Telecommunications Act last year. Many of us, generally, didn't know what it meant, because even the politicians didn't know what metadata meant. Just one. <laughs> Just one. <laughs> Shh. He knows it now, that's right, it's okay. <laughs> but that's the question. We, having all our communications records stored, don't be fooled, your ISP, Telstra, Optus, whomever, is being called to task. Figure out how to store your consumer's data set for up to two years. What did you search yesterday in your search box at home? About divorce? About disease? About unemployment? Faith? I'm not saying at the end that the police or law enforcement or government are concerned about questions of your household. But let's talk big data for a, min a minute. Let's talk analytics. And I'm not posing this as a big data versus privacy debate. It's big data and privacy. We've got to come to terms with the fact that big data is here and it is being used for good, to benefit us in some way, catch tax cheats and so forth. But at the end of the day, if we don't have privacy, we don't have freedom, we don't have autonomy to think, we don't have free will to make decisions. And that's critical to any society. And if we call ourselves a free society, then we should be demanding from our governments and the companies we subscribe to, we are the owners of our data, not you. You come and ask me if you want to search my records. And you know, Google, you pay me. You pay me every time you run a Gmail AdWord through your Gmail account and plaster messages and advertisements to other people and make other organisations pay for it. That's our data, ladies and gentlemen, not the governments and not Googles or Apples or whomever. So I stand here between these two gentlemen on the citizen side. Let's reclaim a bit of our pride but also our autonomy. And if Google or anyone wants to access, and as a citizen or as a consumer, I want to give over some of that data, then sure, you have the right to do that if you've got nothing to hide, nothing to fear. Sure, make money from it. Don't let these big companies make money from it. Don't let the government pay Google to get the data from it. Don't let the government create metadata laws in order to access your private innermost thoughts that are now being typed up on the internet and being stored for up to two years, we need to cre reclaim our citizenship. And, and if you'd like to do that with Google, it means that you need to read through about 25,000 pages of disclaimers. And, <laughs> and if you do, you can then finally actually accept or, or deny the fact they want to. And, and the fact is, is that if you look online for all of the different things that you suggested, Google will sure as hell provide lots of different advertising to make sure you're well catered for. Um, point taken, I think, Alistair, please, I mean, you know, I, I think a bit of a response to that. Um, it, it's a heartfelt plea, I think, for, you know, for the citizen and, and ownership of data. Um, but, you know, there are quite valid reasons that, that we need access to data at times. I mean, there's no avoiding the fact we're a digitised world, and some of you might have sat through the Internet of Things panel earlier on today, and that, you know, data will only grow exponentially, um, and, and those elements of our lives that we live will be linked to the Internet in ways that we can't even imagine right now. Um, so so, so how, do we, how do we solve this? So it's really hard in this debate to, to not 
in my view, stray from, from the topic. The topic is the FBI getting into that device. But I want to address something Lev said. Lev, this, this tool was never going to be given to the FBI so that it could, it could be used. You talk about the NSA allegedly losing some code. Um, uh, you know, this was a tool that was going to be held by Apple for a device that was lawfully held by the FBI and handed to Apple so that it could take data off to assist in a serious investigation. Katina, I agree with you absolutely about data. We give this stuff away. I gave away a heap when I was driving up the Hume Highway today to come to Sydney. You've all given it away today if you've got a smartphone in your pocket. And this is a debate we need to have. Uh, but, but the question of government accessing this data is a, is, a, is a much more simple one. And that is, government only wants to do it when it's lawful, so you've got to have laws. You've got to have a break glass provision, right? We all expect that. A civil society where there are freedoms, a civil society where there's privacy, is a society where you have to transgress that from time to time. Because if everyone was absolutely free, it's anarchic. And that's not what our society is based on. Our society is based on, on a civil code, on rules of law, on acceptable behaviours between people. And when they transgress those behaviours, there has to be an ability for government to gain access to the information it needs to carry out investigations to protect the rest of us. And that's what this debate is about. It's not about big data. It's not about whether big corporates know more about us than we do or government ever will, because that's next year's debate. This year's debate is about whether or not there should be lawful access to electronic items as there is to other things. And I can think of a no more privacy infringing thing to do than to, ex to execute a search warrant upon someone's house and go through their private possessions and to use any such force as is reasonably necessary to do so. Because that's what a search warrant allows a police officer do, to do, and we accept the fact that they do that in this society. We've accepted it for hundreds of years. We also accept the fact that the likelihood of it happening to us is near zero. And that's the likelihood of your data being accessed by government on your phone. That's the likelihood of your telephone records being accessed and all the other metadata. That's the likelihood. But to say that we shouldn't have an ability to do that, to protect the individual, to protect society more broadly, is, is just such a false argument. Because then we'd have an anarchic place that none of us want to live. There is nothing more horrible to do to someone than to breach their privacy. And, 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 and every police officer I've ever known, every intelligence officer I've ever known, does it frankly with a heavy heart. An inefficient, heavy heart. <laughs> so. So you are fine, but if we don't have the laws, if we don't have the case law, if we don't have the laws, if we don't have the courts, if we don't have parliaments dealing with this, then you end up with the concept of people stealing it, going around those laws, and that's not what we want. The police and intelligence agencies need a brightly lit door that they cannot go through most of the time, and that a court or an attorney general in the case of an intelligence agency gets that door unlocked for them, that they do their lawful thing, that they're oversight of what they do, and they go about their business to try to protect us. That's what this debate is about. And the FBI versus Apple case should have been about that, and it wasn't because the intense, the, the, the white-hot flame of intensity that came about it from Apple fanboys, and they're all boys, by the way, mostly, right, around the world that got on social media and ripped people like me apart who said, shouldn't we have a rational debate 
about the concept of a search warrant and a right of access. And I want to talk about one thing which I'd love to hear the views of the panel. Mm -hmm. I presume you think that us government folk, those who are transgressing people's rights every day, don't like encryption. Well, I want to tell you that the vast bulk of people I deal with in government, including intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies, think encryption is great. Yes. Right? May there be billions of us that use encryption that when at rest on our devices they are protected, when in flight it's encrypted, because we want to stop criminals. We want to make sure when our phone is lost or stolen that, that someone else can't get in there and steal our stuff. I want your bank records to be safe. But people seem to think that government hates encryption. Sure, it's tough for government, okay? It's tough if you're intercepting a telephone call and it's encrypted. It's tough if you seize an item and it's encrypted. That's what this debate is about. This debate is about saying, we want you to be using these technologies. They're good, they protect us when used wisely. But every once in a while, there has to be a break glass provision to protect us. So do you think government doesn't like encryption? Do you no, think they don't? I, I think they love it. I mean, the CIA former director came out and said, encryption is the future, and it increases public safety. I want you to think about that. Hmm. Rather than diminishing public safety, I'm not talking security, public safety, it increases public safety to have security and encryption. And I believe, and I don't, I don't know, Lev, what you found from your research, but there's going to be a whole heap of new industry around encryption now spurred on from this debate. So I, so I answer this. So if we have encryption and it's good, how do we then break the glass to access a device in the, in the extreme case when something bad happens, or do we not? So in this instance, and Lev, I'll pass on to you after Fair. this, is, is the fact that proportionality, as I said at the beginning of this talk, is important and probable cause. Did we really need to go through this saga for this person's handset, of which we already had data? And of the whole day, the NSA just didn't have 18 minutes. On proportionality, should it have gone through the court? And that's the question that I have. It wasn't, but because I'm, a, I'm isn't all that for a risk. Isn't that a judge's decision? You put, the, you put the case before a judge, judge decides, yes, you do. It's not for us, the public, to decide about probable cause. That's a court. That's what courts are there for. That's what we pay judges to do, to make judgments. But it didn't a have to go to A judge made a decision. It could have been discussed further in Congress. They just weren't waiting, you know, too fast and too slow. So we want this done. I'm going to compel Apple to do something. I'm going to tell them what to do. They're going to write software code for us, and they're going to sign it in Apple's name. Apple didn't realize when they created the iOS, which was dubbed FBIOS, potentially. It's a great, name. Um, <laughs> it's a great name. It'd be so popular. That Apple was going to be its own worst enemy. Apple has been creating, just like other companies, encryption so they can stop the Russians and the Chinese hackers from entering from other hackers in other plates, homegrown in the US, the last thing they thought they were ever doing was creating an iOS that they would have to protect themselves against from themselves. Right? They were being compelled by the FBI. Apple became its worst attacker. Apple, you go and make your engineers create a way through this. Mind you, what we all found out from this is that everyone else knows how to do it too. It just cost Celebrite 15,000, sorry, they, they received 15,500 for this purported exercise to <laughs> hack into the iPhone 5C. 
Well, interestingly here, I think what we see is that both government and you know, big corporations have security in mind, but it's just that they maybe don't quite match up. We haven't quite found this sweet spot where the two definitions and ideals of security actually begin to overlap, national security and, and the security yes. of the individual as expressed through products like Apple iPhones and, and anything else. Lev, if I, if I could ask you to perhaps reflect on that question and mm. um, also just tell us where next, where is this debate going to go before we get the audience to participate with some questions? of their own because we've seen that the director of the FBI now has come out very recently and said this is you know the beginning um, not the end and now is the time that we really need to push forward with this discussion and especially now that maybe some of the hyperbole has begun to settle well uh, I think um, it, it goes several places I think one is that um, Apple is going to try to uh, Apple never wants to be in this situation again uh, uh, I'm not an engineer, but my understanding is uh, they are going to try to engineer themselves even further out of the equation and create a device uh, which it would be uh, very much more difficult for them to get into themselves. They, they, don't, they, don't, they don't want to be under this kind of scrutiny again. Uh, uh, and, and that'll be quite interesting. Um, I think it's the case... Uh, what, what I haven't heard uh, is... Um, I actually haven't heard a, a, a proposal that I've found particularly convincing um, for a way to uh, bypass or get past uh, encryption in these case in these devices that will not um, uh, dangerously weaken the overall uh, security environment. I, I I just haven't heard it yet, um, and it's it's one of the things we're waiting for. We're waiting for it to get into court again, which um, I think it probably likely uh, and. Uh, this may be cynical of me, but they're going to wait for another moment where it will be politically expedient uh, to put this in the courts again. Um, you know, it's a debate that's going to simmer. Uh, the technology will gallop on uh, ahead far faster than the legislative process. Uh, that'll be interesting to watch. I think it's uh, quite clear also that um, uh, terrorists, malefactors, uh, are going to be uh, looking to uh, use devices not made in the U.S., uh, there uh, I think Apple is going to lose some sales there. Uh, I think. I, I think. Hopefully, not too many. Yes. Uh, I worry about them. Don't you? I worry about yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I think we're. I think we're going to. We're, we're going to. We're going to see them. Um, uh, you know, pursuing their own uh, encryption agenda, um, and. Uh, um, Realizing that you know they don't want it, it, should the should the law clarify itself, um, they don't want to be holding the wrong device. Thank you. Now it's your turn, the audience, and as this is an issue that touches most of you in this audience, I, I, if anyone would like to ask a question, we have two microphones, one to your right or your left, marked one and two. If you have a question, if I could just ask you to go and line up behind the microphones. Um, please feel free. And if I could just ask you to keep your questions quite short so everyone can get a chance, as many as possible. So please, to my left, to microphone number one, please, gentleman here. Yep, uh, hi there, my name's Nick. Thanks for your discussion, it was interesting. <coughs> um, Alistair, you stated that uh, the, the government's, everybody's concern about the government wanting everybody's data is an irrational fear and that, you know, it's a break glass thing that would only be done in certain circumstances and all that business. You also listed as a reason for this was that NSW's major concern was a terrorist attack, which is another irrational fear. It doesn't happen that often. Why, in your view, does one trump the other? So you don't execute a search warrant based on fear. You execute a search warrant based on... Yeah, but uh, you have uh, the power to conduct the break glass out of that irrational fear. Well, uh, 
So the fear of the New South Wales public is the fear of the New South Wales public. What law enforcement agencies will do is execute search warrants online or offline uh, based on investigations of matters, right? Reasonable grounds to believe, reasonable grounds to suspect, not fear. So, look, there's nothing at all wrong with having robust legislation. And, and let's not talk about terrorism. Let's talk about sex crimes. Let's talk about uh, murders. Let's talk about major drug dealers. We could talk about any of those things. And the same powers are needed to investigate all of those matters. I've spent far too long of my life investigating online child sex offenders. Uh, what do you do if you don't gain access to that data? Do we allow those people to operate? And people say, well, that's emotive. Yeah, crime is. Crime's a hellishly emotive thing. Um, and we don't want to be victims of it. And to not be victims of it, you need to have the right powers. What I'm arguing, actually, Nick, is that these powers are the same online as they, as they are offline. We should just apply our same level of sensibilities to what we've actually allowed for hundreds of years offline to apply online, not to somehow make it different, but to apply the same level of thinking, the same level of judicial oversight, the same level of parliamentary oversight to achieve the same end, because these days our electronic data is a critical part of understanding what, what a, a criminal is up to. That's all I'm saying. I think the concern with it is, though, is that when we sign trade agreements, is that it can be used on the corporate level to go after people committing other, more minor crimes than something emotive like a terrorist attack or a pedophile. Or a somebody rape just or a murder or drug yeah. dealing or money laundering. Yeah, all of those emotive things. Just minor things like that, I know. That's, that's the main worry. Shocking, I know. Yeah. We should all just go and get proper jobs, I know. So, I know. <laughs> so I'm going to ask gentlemen over here, please. Hi, Alistair. Uh, uh, this is a question for Alistair. You're popular uh, today. I, yeah, you're I might pass man. it on to Lev, I don't yeah. know. I don't, I'll, well, tell me, the government only just wants a break the glass door just to access data, why do we have to provide our data on sensors? Oh. Why is that compulsory and well, why do you want to link it? Well, well it, it had to happen. Well, the good thing is, luckily, halfway through the 9th of August, you didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's taken up considerable time for me in the last several weeks to answer just that very question. <laughs> and why haven't we used these data to prosecute people for the global financial crisis? So, look, uh, let's talk about census firstly. Um, uh, and, there, and, and I'll leave it to others to talk about global financial crisis. Um, uh, uh, the census. The, the, uh, who's filled out their census, by the way? Excellent. There's still time. You won't be fined if you don't fill it out on the night. If you could. Um, okay, so, look, the type of data that you gave away in the census is significantly less than the information that most of us would give away to other people every day. I, look, I, I, I obtain my passport online. I do my banking online. I do all these other activities online. What the government was asking you to do, if it had done it successfully, was on the 9th of August to allow you to give your information online to the census. The type of information there is to help build, work out where to build schools and where to build hospitals. Um, so I think the concept of census has gone on for probably 100 or so years. Is that right? I think there have been 20 of them or so. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the fatal error on the night was just, frankly, poor planning. Uh, and uh, that's... If you want to summarise what I'm telling the Prime Minister, that's about it, really. Um, uh, but, but, but I don't think we should uh, equate the census with the concept of lawful access to information on private devices or inside people's houses by government. That's a very different matter. That's when we come in and take it from you. And what I'm arguing is you want courts and you want parliaments to regulate that. Because if you don't have it, then either we can't investigate those matters uh, or worse, agencies might work around it. 
and you don't want that. What we want is a brightly lit front door that is well regulated. I didn't say to break the glass door, by the way, it's a break glass provision to just push open that door gently unless it's, you know, so. And by the way, uh, every time I've ever asked a criminal to hand me something, it's never worked. Usually you've got to take it from them. I mean, I, th I think as, as a member of the public, what, what you want to know is that when someone has accessed your data from a government perspective, that they've jumped through all of the yes. loopholes and the requirements yes. necessary. And if they did access your data unlawfully or without the proper authorization, they would be fired. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, in this country, there's a, there's a perception that intelligence agencies aren't regulated. Mm. Uh, sure, they are clearly by their nature. They, it, it's not as open and transparent as some may like. Uh, by the nature of it, uh, th there has to be a level of secrecy around them. But, but, but there's an Inspector General for Intelligence and Security who can go through every single file in every single intelligence agency. There's a parliamentary oversight committee. There are defence ministers and attorneys general on both sides of parliament over the years that also look, look over those same agencies. The reality is the level of oversight for intelligence agencies in this country is extraordinarily high. Uh, and, and that should always be the subject of debate. But we, shouldn't, we should not think that there isn't oversight. Could there be more? That's a matter for debate. Could it be better? Absolutely we should be debating that. But we shouldn't assume that there is no oversight for intelligence agencies. Coming from a law enforcement background as I do, I can definitely tell you there's oversight. And still, and still that fails. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't have powers for police. We all rely upon those. Can they be done better? Absolutely. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. The reality is we need access to this type of information and it's needed every day. Gentleman with a fabulous beard, I think I saw you uh, arrive at the microphone first. Thank you, it is fabulous, I appreciate that. Um, this is a question, I suppose, really for anyone on the panel to answer, but obviously we have, we've discussed this in the matter of terrorism, okay? So arguments of national security, obviously the safety and health of individuals who might have been in the area, they're very valid reasons for all of us to say, yeah, sure, grab the guy's phone, get access. Would you perceive, though, that the government, obviously that's one type of... Uh, it's one part of the legal enforcement aspect. What about the IRS or in Australia, the ATO? Do you perceive that they should have to be able to gain access to a person's mobile phone device in a different way to, say, you know, the police would be if they're looking for terrorism or would be talking uh, tax, you know, tax-related things and stuff like that? Would you see that they should have to undergo the same process, be gaining access to people's mobile phones? Now there's a lot more, um, you know, POS-based systems that work off that for businesses and all the rest of it. Perhaps if I could bring Katina and Levin just to talk about that kind of wider access. So if you've collected sure. data... I'm not going to defend the ATO. That's uh, someone else's job. Um, yeah. um, Let's please. I mean, there's always... There's, <laughs> there aren't clear answers here. I feel like I've done a poorer job of articulating my personal position on these issues than the other panellists. It's because there aren't so many uh, shades of grey involved. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, you know, there's, there's a weighing of options here. And... Uh, on the one hand, uh, I think it is unlikely that uh, we're going to be able to give government the kind of access it wants without causing some damage to the overall security ecosystem. That will have to be weighed against how urgent it is the problem that we're trying to solve, how bad the people are uh, that we're trying to catch. Um, uh, when you get to the IRS and tax dodging and things like that, um, uh, I would love to have legislators and experts who are not me hash that out in a very public way and make a decision about it because it's a really hard call to make. Um, but uh, it is a judgment call uh, and we'll, they'll have to find the line and it'll be uh, you know, somewhere around there, uh, but really hard to say where it actually should be. Katina? Sorry to bring up the census again. It'll never <laughs> go away, this one. But um, 
It's linked to your four, question. Four years and 11 <laughs> months' time we should talk about it. Again. <laughs> the, the, the thing is, um, again, I go back to that premise. Let us know, and it's okay. Mm. And what most Australians didn't realise is there was a new introduction in the census of your name and your date of birth coming out with a statistical linkage key in SLK, which could be used to link with other federal databases on a whole host of things. You could look up your own SLK um, just by looking at the format um, of how many letters from the first name, second surname, and date of birth. And how many of you knew that it could be used for data matching with veterans, with um, health, with uh, pharmaceutical benefits scheme, with tax? So it has to be transparent. Going back to your question, it has to be. Yeah. I'll directly answer your question and say the Australian law uh, will allow so the concept of protection of revenue. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the, 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 the key question you should ask yourself, in my view, is the inefficient investigators that we've been talking about. Uh, you go for best evidence, right? So you do not go and go down some arcane path to break into someone's iPhone for the purposes of taxation investigation. You go to the Commonwealth Bank, uh, or you go to, uh, to uh, some form of uh, Department of Social Security uh, to gain that type of data, uh, and they can lawfully do that, and rightly so, to protect the revenue. So, uh, you know, you, you've got to ask yourself this question of, what effort should I go to? And then you've got to say, and I've got to be granted a warrant to do it, and, and any judge that I've ever met is going to say, why? Show me why you have to go down this egregious path of breaching this person's privacy to go about that investigation. We should stop thinking of government as an enemy. I know there's a trust issue here. We should certainly stop thinking of investigative agencies as an enemy because all they're trying to do is to protect us in it. They don't always do it well, as I say. Don't get me wrong. And that should be another topic for the yes. Fody folk next year. I've got two yes. ideas already. <laughs> uh, they're dangerous. And I'm a government guy too. So like, if, if I can do it, um, we should come up with some crackers. But... But, but so, so the reality is, yeah, technically speaking, you can execute search warrants for protection of revenue, you can do other things, but will they? Probably not. To my right, please. Um, so this is to the entire panel. Um, so basically from my perspective, from what I could gather, is part of the issue is to do with a level of transparency between government and citizens in terms of the powers that are allocated to these agencies, uh, what, what, what they can do and what they can't do. Um, and there's definitely a perception that a lot of these laws sort of get passed under the auspices of um, terrorism or pedophiles, when in actual fact they have much broader, um, much more broader uh, applications, and then we see them sort of get used outside those areas. So my question is, is um, uh, should the government be more involved in communicating with the public about, about what laws are being passed and exactly uh, the limits and uh, applicability of these laws? And what do you think the uh, state of that sort of communication is here in Australia and what can be done better? If I promise to be quick, can I start? Yeah. <laughs> and I'll watch okay, the timer. I'll only go for Brief. five minutes and 19 seconds. No, <laughs> joke. Which is how long we've got left. Okay, very quickly. When the metadata debate was on, which was another highly irrational debate, I'd add, um, I, uh, because the implication was because the telcos were going to store the metadata, somehow it meant the government had access to that metadata and was using it every day. And the reality is that's not the case. The reality is the law requires them to hold the data with a break glass provision that if they need my data, they can come and get it. Very different scenario. But I argued during that debate to limit the number of agencies that can access it. Yeah. Because at the time, North Sydney Rangers could go and access metadata or other things. 
You know, the Blacktown Council could go and access it because someone dumped rubbish on the street. Well, there's better ways to detect someone dumping rubbish. Put a camera up and get their rego, okay? Or ask the neighbour who dumped it, okay? So, so why would you be going after metadata? I was one of those people in favour of metadata laws to strengthen them, while at the same time limiting the number of agencies for the, for the right reasons to gain access to it. And that's fundamental to this thing. Whether or not governments need to get better at articulating where laws begin and end. Uh, look, it's often the, the, the most emotive things that lead to, to, to laws being created, absolutely. So there's a major attack uh, in New York in September 11, uh, and, and, and we changed laws. There's an attack in Bali, we changed laws. There's an attack in another location, we look at laws, absolutely. A horrible rape occurs and we say the police couldn't act. There's nothing wrong with using those big acts where we then, where those, those horrible events and looking and saying, are we sufficiently protected? Um, and, and it's the parliamentarian's job to limit the extent of that power and it's then the job of, of the courts the media and us to make sure that, that, those, that, that, our, that our, our privacy and our liberties are not transgressed beyond what Parliament expected. And then we elect those parliaments and we go through it all again. But there's nothing wrong with using emotive crimes to generate law uh, at all. And, and frankly, those emotive crimes have victims and families and other things in there. And it's our job as a society to protect the weak. It's our job as a society to protect victims. And that's what this debate is about, and we failed in the FBI versus I'm, I'm actually going to come in here, though, because there were some victims of the San Bernardino shooting who were actually very angry that this was used as a case, and they didn't yes. want their names associated with yeah, this absolutely. bigger issue. Yes. Um, and I wondered also, because President Obama came out rather strongly as well at the time, saying that actually we shouldn't, in times like this, be making policy. Better to make policy in times of calm. That's uh, democracy. Lev, where, where do you think on that front? Uh, we, we should say. Uh, we've ended up with some debt from some very bad lies. We we passed the bad laws uh, in the wake of September 11th, um, but uh, it, it, it's yes. there's, there's so few uh, so few um, clear answers in this because you know at least in our country I don't know about yours, um, but uh, it's so difficult to get uh, legislators to act um, that sometimes the the, the the spur of a public tra tragedy uh, is all we have, and sometimes that's not even enough. We can't even enact gun control laws in America, uh, and despite, uh, you know, yes. uh, 15, 17 mass shootings since Obama was elected, I mean, uh, uh, it's a nightmare. So, uh, you know, there's, there's just, there isn't a clear answer about that. I, I just want to add one extra thing about, um, obvious, uh, not obviously, but it, it, the, the government needs to, uh, to be clearer and more precise and more transparent. Um, Silicon Valley also needs to be much more transparent and clear. We have uh, these large, very wealthy organizations which are acting in ways that we think of as more proper to governments, um, but without the same accountability. Um, uh, I'd love to see that, uh, um, see some of that transparency and accountability brought to them. Mm. So. We are literally tying up a time now, but this gentleman here has stood very patiently and diligently. I wonder if you could ask your question really snappily, and I'm going to ask for an incredibly quick answer from the panel too, but I want you to get your chance. Um, basically, a very quick question, and that is that it's not so much a question of, I think, whether we s trust one government. It's a question of whether we trust all governments, because the thing about our phones, the thing about our data, is it's global. And as case proven by the recent Apple exploit, where a Middle Eastern human rights activist was being 
potentially attacked by his own government when they were trying to hack into his own iPhone. Or in the case of the recent Playpen Tor network, I don't know if you're familiar with that, yes. the Playpen Tor network thing, where tens of thousands of computers were hacked based upon a single Virginia state-based warrant. The, the thing is that Apple's stand is basically saying this prevents any country from getting access because Apple itself can't have access. Is that potentially the direction that we have to take? Because it's not whether we trust okay. our government, it's Thank whether you. we trust so every government. So I think there's a question there about you know, uh, the, the global responses yes. to this, and that very directly leads us into the international discussion on cyberspace and internet governance here. Um, does anyone have a, a couple of word answer that we can express before my time goes up and they shoot me as uh, chair because so, I failed, please? So I'm going to say one word, ubervalence. So basically, we're moving from intelligence-led policing to evidence-based policing, right? A bit of minority report there. And if today they're asking for a passcode, tomorrow they're going to ask to access the audio microphone on your phone and, and then the camera on your phone. Every app I've got does the same uh, thing. Actually. No, it's different. If it's legislated, it's very different. Okay, fi final word. Alistair and then Lev, please. Uh, we need to worry about our own governments and, and the governments where our data resides. Clearly, a lot of what happens in the United States impacts us. Thank, thank goodness they're a democracy. Uh, we use this technology at our peril. All I'll say is, is we have to watch governments. We have to watch Silicon Valley and the people who are making these technologies. They act so fast, so much more fast than, uh, governments, than governments do, and their technology penetrates for society very quickly with yes. vast unexpected consequences about which they care nothing. So I promised that I was going to finish with another vote. Save your applause, because we're going to applaud them in a minute. So oh. who, who, who's voting for Apple this time? No one. Who, great. Shush, shush. <laughs> sorry, I couldn't see anyone. You're going to work for government. Keep, <laughs> oh, right, OK, sorry. to say less. Um, who's going to vote for the FBI now? Hey. Oh, wow. Okay, like that is quite a remarkable shift. I would say 50-50 almost yeah. where we've gone from very heavily towards Apple. Thank you, family. Well, so that, that's... <laughs> Do not encourage him. Do not encourage him. <laughs> so all that remains is thank you very much, Lev Grossman, Katina Michael, Alistair McGibbon. Thank you very much. And thank, thank you, you for being with us today. Thanks, mate. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.